Like what? Well, it's they have a job, they have a security. Like what more do you want? Well, it's, well, it's all. It's also it comes back to a culture and values thing where our culture has told us you can be self reliant. You don't need other people. Where I think that there's there's a harmony when two people come together and they're lifting and supporting the other person up. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a there's an inner beauty to that that our culture has pushed aside along with a bucket load of other principles and values and ideals in the in this quest to get pretty much this race to the bottom first. Yeah. Did you have a look at the video I sent you? I did. Oh my goodness. That poor, poor... Are you hoping to find a match today? Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping not to continue this pattern of very, very bad men. (laughs) I... I do feel sympathy in some ways for the late for the lady in that video because nah. it's like, oh my goodness, she's completely clueless. I feel like but this I, is what I'm encountering. I'm like, so yeah. be it. This is this is not me. This is you. And I feel like this is what I'm encountering nowadays. Yeah. All right, but you, you sort of anyway. get the vibes now. All right. No, so I do. I do. I do get the direction you want to go in. Uh, yeah. Crack on with. We're back with the Fire in the Desert with myself, Johnny, and Pat. How you going? Hey, Johnny. Good to be back again. All right. 28, female for male, looking for a cushion, child-free guy. Firstly, please don't bash, downvote, message, or attack me just because my views are different from yours. Thank you for being a mature adult. Here are information about me. What I'm looking for. Serious Christian, child-free man for relationship. But let's get to know each other first as friends. Child-free means doesn't want to have kids, ever. My favorite hobbies, YouTube, Reddit, a bit of gaming. About me, I'm a ISTJ, ISFJ, Asian, very shy and introverted and a simple gal. I'm a homebody and a couch potato. I would like to travel as well. I honestly don't eat healthy and never exercise, lol. But I am HWP, height weight proportional. I think I'm a hopeless romantic. I've had a very tough life. I've had depression, social anxiety, epilepsy. I'm taking more medicines than most senior citizens. My love languages in order are physical touch and words of affirmation. I think my strong points are my honesty, patience, trustworthiness, understanding, and being appreciative. My weak points are selfishness, laziness, negativity, and being envious. You must be willing to accept me since this is who I am. I will have to accept you who you are as well. I'm looking for a guy who's around my age, slash older, 26 and above, mature, a serious Christian, at least prays daily, prioritizes God above all, does not want kids ever, one who never cheats, and that includes porn, romantic, i.e. loving, loves, kissing, hugging, etc. a lot, gentlemen, will open the doors for me till the end of time, not just before we marry, doesn't drink, smoke, do drugs, will cook and clean, since I do admit I'm lazy, lol, 
Not hot-headed, doesn't shout, and does not argue about stupid things. I've had enough of that. Isn't too health-conscious. Preferred but not deal-breakers. Same love language as me, homebody, and introverted. If you reached here, thank you for reading. If you're not the one I'm looking for, then maybe you know someone who you can recommend. God bless. And that was a post from Reddit. Unfortunately, uh, we won't uh, disclose this person. And I'll just caveat to the listeners that please don't search for this person or try to message them. It's already hard for this person. Like we don't need people to send more messages to them, especially if if they are generally suffering from mental health. And uh, this was a a post from Reddit from a a female age 28 and looking for, uh, for a guy. And this is what she wrote. Pat. What are your thoughts? Like, what do you think of this person? What do you think of her standards? Like, what are our chances of meeting this person that she's listed out? And what would you say? I don't think it's a necessarily a, what do I think of this person as an individual? I think it's more of a, it's, I think it's a good bit of a discussion or commentary on the state of dating and relationships today in our 21st century world where we've got technology running amok everywhere and it's trying to be trying to use it to fill in a gap or a void and it doesn't work very well let's put it that way yeah Uh, i found it interesting um so this is not the first time she's posted and if you went to the actual reddit you would have like seen all these comments and like this person's insane or doesn't is not self-aware she has this magical list of so many requirements and she doesn't really offer much to the other person, right? Like she's got, you know, mental health issues. She's, she actually admits she's lazy and wants to stay at home, but she wants to travel. And then, you know, you have to cook for her. You have to do all the cleaning. Like if, if this dream person exists, like why would she choose her? Like he well, has so many options. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's, I think it's more, I, th- I get the read from reading through this this wish list essentially is that there's a bit of a gap here in that she's looking for a wish list to fill all of the different holes that are in her life without realizing that it's two people coming together, filling in the gaps in each other, working together as a team. That's kind of relationships 101, isn't it? There's a bit of a gap there. And again, I we're finding this sort of this sort of dating profile on Reddit of all places. Like that's where people are looking. If that's where people, I find it interesting that people are looking there to try and start healthy long-term relationships. Mm. Yeah. You, you might actually get fun, made fun of on a, uh, on a podcast. So, well, yeah, that, that, that there is truth to that. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think it's important. I think it's important to stress. We're not, the intent here is not, is not to make fun of her specifically and by, by zeroing, you know, zeroing in on her post. No, but okay. So I chose this story because it's both sad and funny at the same time, right? Funny. I think mm. you, you get it. Like no matter how uh, many fun, you... funny, funny, funny is an funny is an interesting choice of words. But I can yeah, it's a it's probably it's probably a good kickoff point to a uh, to an interesting conversation about relationships in general yeah. in the state in the state they're in. Well, it's funny and sad, right? Mm. Like I I had mixed feelings when I read that. And it's like, no matter how many people respond to this person about her standards, she genuinely believes in these requirements. Like there is a lack of self-reflection, self-awareness to understand that these are unrealistic standards that this person is seeking. 
And I actually see this repeated over and over again in the men and women in my community, especially from those who jump from relationship to relationship because of some minor incompatibility. So as much as I hate about talking about coronavirus and quarantine, um, it's all over the news. And there's been a few articles about the rising divorce rates and inquiries about this stuff during the lockdown. So, you know, uh, quarantine hits, you're now spending more time with your significant other. Oh boy. What's going to happen? Oh no, I'm going to find some small slight that my partner, I didn't know my partner had. Oopsie, I guess we need to divorce now. (laughs) Can you believe it? Oh (laughs) gosh. I have to spend time with my significant other. Oh my gosh. Oh no. All right, so first article uh, from 5th of May 20, Australian ABC, how COVID-19 is changing our closest relationships. So evidence is emerging that some households are buckling under the pressure, according to Hader Shikara from Sydney's Justice Family Lawyers. He said there's been a noticeable increase in people inquiring about divorce and traffic to his firm's website has risen by up to 20% since March. And he says people are telling us that being in close confines has accelerated the realization that they don't want to be with their partners anymore. And here's another one. Uh, Fox News, 27th of April. Divorce rates surges in coronavirus quarantine. Reality TV star Kristen Cavallari and former Chicago Bears quarterback Jay Cutler split announced on Instagram. And we've got a little snapshot there, and I'm pretty sure you guys can look it up. But it says there from Kristen, With great sadness, after 10 years together, we have come to a loving conclusion to get a divorce. We have nothing but love and respect for one another and are deeply grateful for the years shared, memories made, and the children we are so proud of. This is the situation of two people growing apart. We ask everyone to respect our privacy as we navigate this difficult time within our family. So look, nothing wrong. That's what she says. Uh, There's nothing wrong, and they still love and respect each other. They've had great time together the years, uh, great memories, and we have really good kids we're so proud of. But we've grown apart. Yeah, it's it's a bit strange. That's what that's what uh, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, fine. Uh, move on to the next article. So yeah. Bloomberg, thirty first of March, twenty. China's divorce spike is a warning to the rest of lockdown world. As the coronavirus raged through China, Mrs. Wu, that's probably a bad name with Wuhan. Uh, Mrs. Wu, a housewife in her thirties in southern Guangdong province, spent almost two months in isolation with her out of work spouse. They fought constantly. Wu, who declined to give her a full name because she wants to protect her privacy, ticked off a familiar list of marital irritants, including money, too little, screen time, too much, and housework and childcare, not evenly split. One particular annoyance was her husband's habit of engaging their two children in play in the evening when they were supposed to be going to bed. He's the troublemaker in the house, she says. I don't want to endure anymore. We've agreed to get a divorce, and the next thing is to find lawyers. Oops. So can you believe that? Like, I think when I was a kid, we had like a little bit of horseplay before we went to bed. Yeah. Uh, and she said, oh, that's that's it. That's it. <laughs> We're going to get a divorce over this stuff. And you know, the there's not enough balance in the, the sharing of workload and there's money and screen time. It sounds, this is a common issue with a lot of marriages. It's that it's a communication breakdown. Like these are all, that story there has all the hallmarks of husband and wife not talking to each other. 
until they went to coronavirus lockdown and when he has no job and he has to she has to actually engage him all the time yeah Yeah. and well because it is an interesting point that we spend more time in the office or with our colleagues at work than we actually do uh our spouse or our family yeah i've never got the whole you know you must have work-life balance it's like if i count up the hours i spend at work during the week it's like nine to five multiplied by five that's way more hours than what i have on the weekend and uh, you know in the evening we pretty much like cook wash up go to bed mm. yeah and it's another one that i just want to point out is that you know horseplay before you go into bed a psychologist actually said um that actually teaches children how to emotionally transition. So going from a excited state to now it's bedtime. If you instill that sort of habitually, then you're sort of disciplining them in how to regulate their own emotions. So that is very true. But there's also a t- there's also a time and place. And what we're what we're dealing with is the husband is, is encouraging activity. The wife doesn't like it. Mm. But instead of the response being okay, let's talk about and let's set our expectations of what is good for the kids at certain times of the evening. They're jumping over the gun going, okay, divorce time. This is the tipping point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit sad. It is very sad, yeah. But Mm. also, there's also a point that over the last 40 years, we've had this growing trend of trivialization of marriage, of the family unit, of the significance of that where we've made it less consequential, less important. So there's not a big issue, the perception of the issue being of, oh, the couple's getting divorced now. Yeah. Or that we're separating, we're going in two different directions. The, the significance or importance of that has been drastically minimized. Mm. And it's interesting that you said it's over the years. So I've got a few stats and mm. we've got it in front of us right now. So we're looking, we pulled up from ABS yeah. Australian Bureau of Statistics, and it goes, uh, median age of men and women at first marriage, 1940s to 2013. And what you see is for men, so it starts by what, 1940s and spans to 2010. So uh, the f- age was what, 27? And it dips down to 23, down in 1975. Mm. And it surges from 23 to age 30 from 1975 to 2013 and then for women it's pretty much similar just it's it's just a few years down below so we used to get married young like if you're below 30 then you're expected to get married back in the 1940s all the way to 19 2000s i guess and then now we're getting older our first marriages we're getting older as a culture we need to grow we needed to grow up faster I think if you go even back go back even further to the 1800s you had 12 year olds expected to act and behave and um conduct themselves as responsible adults you and we can we can argue the psychology of whether that is healthy in the long term whether that's a good good ideal standard to attain but that was the reality you had 12 year olds acting or being held held to the standard or conduct of adults so it makes sense that you had to grow up faster. So then by the time you were in your either tw- uh, in your early 20s, you were of marrying age. So that was just what you did, what you did. There was an expectation there. The need to grow up faster has uh, has changed where it's actually now the opposite. You grow up a lot slower 
Mm-hmm. You reach adulthood when you are 18. Mm-hmm. You reach uh, maturity when, or considered to be a responsible adult living independently of yourself when you're 25 and between 25 and 30. That's the expectation now in our society. I think also that we can then examine, put that under a microscope and examine, is that a, psychologically, is that a good standard? Is that a good thing that we're encouraging people, uh, young people today to do? Mm. And, I, and I'm in, and I'm in that group as well. So that's, we, we can examine if that, if that's a good ethic that we should be um, espousing. See, I, I thought of it from the, like, why is it in 1940s down to 1975, I think, there's probably something to do with history there where, say, Vietnam, everyone was trying to get married early and get out of the draft. Mm. Healthcare, uh, life expectancy has now improved so you can afford to push it back. Whereas, you know, if you look at my ancient times, you, if you were like subsistence, subsistence farmer, like pretty much you were put out into the farm or, or in your dad's farm and, you know, working the soil and then you expected to marry the, the girl next door and make a, a new family and economic unit and set up your own farm and to help sustain the, the life lifeline. Or of course you try to find some the the alternate of that is that you try to find try to marry up or you're trying to find a wealthy family that you can marry into. Yeah. So there, there there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with that as that that emerged in that as well. But mm. you you raise a good point. Yeah. Uh all right. So yeah. Two more stats and we'll establish the problem. So Mm. the other bit is proportion of marriages preceded by cohabitation, 1975 to 2013. And it goes from, so what it is, it's proportion of marriages and those who've cohabitated, i.e. sleeping together in the same uh, same house before they were married. And this is going from 1975. So 1975, what, 18%? And it goes all the way up to 80%. The first time it hits it about, what, late 2005? And it pretty much stagnates around there. Mm-hmm. So we're not getting married. We're actually, I guess, cohabitating before we get married, and then we get married. There's a spike around the 1980s. Uh, no, correction, so the 1990s. Yeah, so it goes yeah. from, what, 40 to, like, 59%. Mm-hmm. And then from 2005, it's pretty much, what, plateaued to 80 yeah it kind of st- it kind of steadies out just yeah. just under 80 percent right yeah and what's the third bit and the third bit is divorce in australia so this is from yeah, again this is from abs and crude divorce rate 1901 to 2017 so divorce rate per thousand resident population and it goes pretty much point what point two percent Pretty much, yeah. Oh, point two rate, and then it goes all the way, spikes to like 4.5. Is it at 4.5 in 1976? And it goes, this happens at the same time that no-fault divorce laws have introduced, Mm. and then it plateaus down to 2.7 and stagnates down. Um, There's a very very sharp drop. So it's 1976, it spikes, then it drops back down to, what is that, about... Three three point two five thereabouts. Yeah. So sorry for context, it goes from four point five back down to three point two five in the space of what looks like about two or three years. Mm-hmm. So it's a massive spike. Then it drops back down, and then it starts to slowly not not goes doesn't go back to what it was before. But it it does it does 
I guess, normalize. Yeah. So, so we, there's a surge in divorce when a divorce law was introduced, no fault mm-hmm. divorce law introduced, yeah. and it never quite recovers down to pre 1976 times. So, yeah. what's the problem state? So, we've seen the, the, the three sort of graphs. We, we're seeing a delay in marriage age. We're seeing a little more increase in cohabitation, try before you buy. And we're seeing a high divorce rate. And that's the problem. So the problem is, why are we facing such difficulty in finding love, finding you know marriage, and how did it get this way? And that brings us to part two, which is the history of marriage. And I've done some reading on this one. And there's an interesting book called The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli Finkel, social psychology professor at Northwestern University, USA. Have you heard of this guy? No, I haven't. Yeah. Well, he's he's been interviewed by a few by a few podcasters, and he's wrote a book. Um, I do encourage you to listen to it. He's uh, he's not Christian, but uh, I think he's he might be Jewish background. Oh yeah. But yeah, social psychologist, and this is sort of what he's put out in history. So there's two major transitions in the thought and attitudes towards marriage. So first part is pragmatic, right? Pragmatic is the pre-industrialization period. You used to be on a farm. Uh, that was pretty much you were tied to the farm. You would, you know, you, your dad was probably a farmer, and you were living off uh, every day. And you you worried about the winters and the harvest, all that kind of period. And when we married, we married to ensure political alliances or to make pragmatic e- economic decisions. The house was your home, so there's none of this. Uh, you go travel work. You, your house pretty much. You know, downstairs was like the workshop, upstairs was the bedrooms, and you needed the people to cook, clean, sew clothing, uh, pass on, you know, the, the family stuff, the family edu- education traditions. As children, you are workers in a family farm. And, you know, functional marriages were a life and death in the situation because you needed you need to be an effective team to survive through droughts and winters. So if the men were out farming, then they would need people to cook, they would need people to clean. So pragmatic, right? That was how it was before. And then it goes into a transition, which is love-based period. Sentimentality is transition, which is 1850 to 1965. So why those periods? It's industrialization period. We had increases in farming efficiency. The price of goods were cheaper. You had the introduction of the locomotive and you had the like, you know, steam train. So you could travel across the country in a matter of days versus months. So food and healthcare were improving. Transportation meant that you could move away from your family and there wouldn't be any negative implications. There's less emphasis on being pragmatic. And we're now living in the cities. And then therefore we're now trying to find our needs, which is now, you know, finding a spouse, finding someone you can love and uh, to be intimate with. But men and women are now spending more time apart. So they're no longer in the same sort of house. Your work was not at home. It was in say the city or some office area. And now we're looking to marriage for love and and passion versus the old political alliances and pragmatic economic decisions. Then he talks about post-1965, and in that second transition is self-expression, self-actualization, or authenticity transition. And this is when we talk about spread of household appliances. So now, uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, 
marry because you're you need someone to be there to cook, clean, uh, sew, wash the clothes. You have household appliances, so washing machines, refrigeration. You've had the birth control pill, so now women no longer need to be tied to, you know, taking time out, uh, and then now they can enter the workforce. You have the sexual revolution, so say the love and intimacy needs, they're not sort of linked to marriage anymore. You have individual rights, civil rights and liberties. Uh, we're now moving post-industry and now to a service-based economy, and now we're moving into looking at marriage and saying we need someone to help us meet our authenticity or personal growth needs. And this is when we look at skyrocketing divorce rates with the introduction of no-fault no divorce laws, so there's legal permission to allow divorce. And we sort of peek down, and the way he says because we've now adjusted, so we stopped marrying so young, we've tried to wait a little bit more to mature a bit after seeing our, you know, maybe Gen X or the boomers sort of fail in marriage at a young age to say, oh, maybe we just wait a bit more. So there's sort of like three types of marriages and there's two major transitions. Uh, does that make sense right now? No, it does make sense. Okay, yeah, cool. So quote from the book, it goes, um, the historical changes in American marriages from the pragmatic to the love-based to the self-expressive errors exhibit striking parallels to the psychologist Abraham Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. So this hierarchy is typically represented as a triangle that encompasses from bottom to top physiological needs for air, water, and food, etc. Safety needs for physical protection, psychological safety, economic security, etc. Belonging and love needs for friendship, intimacy, romantic love, etc. Esteem needs for self-esteem, self-respect, esteem from others, etc. And self-actualization needs to discover one's unique character strengths, to live in accord with these strengths, to live in a moment, etc. The primary functions of marriage revolve around the fulfillment of lower needs during a pragmatic era, middle needs during a love-based era, and higher needs during a self-expressive era. So what he's done is he's mapped these transitions and saying it looks like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, whereas the bottom bit is food, shelter, clothing, etc., then moves up to friendship slash love, and the highest bit, the peak bit, is self-actualization, you know, learning, discovering yourself. So does it make sense? Sorry. Yes, it does make sense. Um, it is quite interesting that typically from, at least from the design design space of, des- of service-based of service-based design, which is an industry that I work in, I was, I'm familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and using that to try and create products and services designed around uh, match, matching these. It's quite interesting because often the takeaway to Maslow's hierarchy is that this is a good thing, something that is the higher, the higher that you go, if the object that you're focusing on that we're examining if it achieves self-actualization that is inherently a good thing but it is interesting that we've mapped american marriages and we've found that it's following the same trends but i would definitely argue that we're that it's actually not a good thing that where we found ourselves self-focus it isn't a good thing it hasn't resulted in that we should be striving after Mm. yeah so I think, yeah, we agree. It makes sense with the transitions and sort of like how and while we're looking at marriages, 
but how does this explain divorce and failed marriages? And like, if we're actually meeting those lower needs, then why are we still failing? And what he's trying to understand is that it's not a pyramid, it's sort of like a mountain. So instead of yeah, traditional pyramid, it's mountain where it's less oxygen in the air. And I'll probably just read it from there. So it says, as with any mountain, the air gets thinner and the oxygen sparser at the higher altitude. As marriages in America have become increasingly orientated towards higher rather than lower altitudes on Mount Maslow, it has required greater oxygenation, greater nurturance regarding each other's emotional and psychological needs. If spouses ex expect their marriages to help them fulfill such needs but are unwilling or unable to invest the time and psychological energy, the oxygen required at that altitude, the marriage is at risk for suffocation, for lethargy, conflict, and perhaps divorce. So if we enter a marriage with a perception that our spouse are not meeting those higher self-actualization needs, which requires deep psychological and spiritual effort, then the marriage is at risk of failure and we feel that our sort of contracted needs aren't being met. So it explains why a woman and a man would divorce their spouse even though they would they were experiencing good financial uh, economic safety, they're having, you know, good kids, but they don't feel that spiritual, emotional need is being fulfilled. And those are pretty intense sort of, um, I guess, reasons to divorce when I, when I look at it from an outside perspective. This is going to probably ruffle a couple of feathers, but marriage is supposed to be a team or relationships. One man, one woman working to, working together. It's supposed to be a team. Uh, I'd say it's even designed and intended to be that way for a very good reason. Unfortunately, I think the old adage of there's no iron team kind of plays into into a little bit here. Is that if you're going in with the intent or the idea that it's I focused to go back to the original uh, Reddit post that we opened this discussion in, it's if you're going in looking for what can I get out of the relationship or what can the person, other person coming in give me or provide for me, then you're, if, that's your, if that's your focus, you've got two people then going into a relationship trying to work together, but they're focused in on themselves, not focused in on the other person. Mm. And, if, and that's where you repeat back or double back on the story from uh, China with um, that couple who were divorcing over what you'd call relatively minor disagreements or differences, it's that they're, again, they're, they're focusing on, themsel on the, themselves as the individual, not on the other person, and then trying to support, and again, that teamwork. So that's, I think that's something that's missing, and that's what... It's quite interesting that you mention the idea of there's being less oxygen to go around the higher you get up, that you can't... The higher you climb up, climb up this we'll call it um, Mount Maslow, mm -hmm. that when you don't have oxygen, you can't breathe. That actually does does make sense. When there's not enough oxygen to go around when you're focused so intently on yourself that your spouse or your partner can't share that oxygen with you. There's no, there's no room. So if that's, where the if that's where the relationship is defined, and again, it, I think it's important that self-actualization is, is an important part of a relationship, I think the emphasis here is part of a relationship here. But if it is the focus, then two people can't 
can't exist on that. No, not without not without snapping. And I think that's pro- that snapping at breaking is probably what we're observing as as this as we were looking at those stats earlier. Yeah. So we'll, we'll address that. But a little segue is that what does it mean to provide self actualization? The example that Eli Fingel gives is Michelangelo's unfinished captive to describe self actualization, which is the process of moving from actual self to true self. So imagine yourself in if you look if you look Google the image up, you see this sort of half done sculpture. The sculpture is in the stone, but requires a sculptor to reveal it to you know chip away at those rough edges to reveal the true image. And so the self-actualization marriage requires the spouse to sculpt each other to reveal their spouse's authentic self. And that is a, like, if, you, if you're not, I guess, psychologically, I guess, intelligent, is that what you say? Or emotionally intelligent or is that kind of, these self-actualization things, these are like the metaphysics, it's mental, it's spiritual. If you're not in those areas, then, well, that self-actualization part, you're probably never going to be able to fulfill those needs. Again, I think that self-actualization is important when you're trying to figure out who you are as a person. But if you stay there, if you exist there 100% of the time, then, again, if we're we're talking about relationships, two people can't be so individual-focused when you've got two people there in the room, it's, it's got to be a. I, I'd say it's a t, it's again, goes back to what I said before. Where it's it's a t, it's a team effort, working together, two individuals coming together to be one. We've opened up with examining some of the problems in modern relationships. Is it because we're being too picky, when we have a long list that people, and even ourselves, cannot satisfy? Is there something wrong when a couple who still love and respect each other, who cherish each other, and are a good parenting team, decide they've had enough and they think they've grown apart? What would lead to a couple to divorce when there doesn't appear to be indications of violence or constant bickering, but the couple are still pretty supportive as a friend and spouse. Eli Finkel's thesis that Western marriages have transitioned with technology and social change to move from pragmatic to love and now self-actualization appears to make sense. It is a very sound explanation of how we got here. The question needs to be asked, is this the right direction? If people were able to survive and enjoy the pragmatic and love-based marriages, Is the self-actualization marriage better, and is it sustainable? Keep that in mind, and now back to the show.
Hmm. Like, oh, look, I think there's nothing wrong with meeting each other's needs. It's that third tier, that higher tier, is something that not everyone can actually provide. And I want to dig into it a little bit more because it goes in implications that is due to sort of how we how we do work in the West, which is now a service-based economy. You think from Monday to Friday, right? You're not doing work-life balance. It's, yeah. it's you're spending more time at work in that in that week, so we're spending less time with our partners, right? And the challenge is, well, this higher tier need it requires a lot of time to develop, so we're spending less time. What what sorry? What's our spouse's need? We need to do those self-actualization activities and also those lower to mid-tier ones. How am I going to fulfill that? <laughs> and one of the comments was that marriage is now a game for the rich and the educated. So who, those who have resources for those higher altitude requirements. And if you are a low-income earner, you're focused on you know the first and second level. Your, your life is too chaotic and you're too dependent on trying to get your weekly wage to survive. So you can't ever... There's less probability of, of meeting a spouse's higher needs that self-actualization need if you're low income. So therefore, it becomes a game for the rich. And I want to think, is, that, is this a realistic expectation to put this burden on your partner? Can we get these things anywhere else? What was something that comes to mind? Well, the, self, the experts in self-actualization are like those gurus or religious people or psychologists. Why your partner? I'm not sure how that transferred there. Yeah, and then... I guess communication. One bit is that was there an expectation when you entered that marriage contract to have that self-actualization met? Like, I'm not sure about those wedding vows. I'm not sure what, what yours is like, Pat. Like, I hope you didn't put self-actualization in that mm. contract. And yeah, well, I think one thing that, say, churches would be lacking is the guidance on marriage. And we have freedom on on how we can choose who we want to get married with, but it lacks intent and understanding. So... I think nowadays we have so much choice. We have so much opportunity to communicate with strangers through the internet. We overlook other people. And so the church is looking at telling the basics, avoiding sins, adultery, and incest, right? But what am I supposed to look for in a person? And that message is being taken away and it's being replaced by the media and Hollywood. Such lovely role models they've turned out to be. Which they are the most horrible people to <laughs> Oh my goodness. To give marital guidance. Like you just look at the divorce rates in Hollywood, right? Yep. Well, it's actually funny you mention that because I've I've heard it thrown around fifty percent of marriages end in divorce. There's truth to that in, in one respect. Fifty percent of marriages within Hollywood end in divorce. I'd actually probably say it's even higher. I reckon too. I'd say it, it's actually close to 30% of marriages end in divorce outside of Hollywood. Outs- in the real world, that's more, it's, it's more like that. Mm. Again, I, fi- I find that very funny that Hollywood preaches to us, here is what a relationship should look like, yet for some reason they can't seem to, ha- they can't seem to hold one themselves. I could speak loads on some of the fr- ridiculous frivolous garbage that comes out of that place but again that's another that's another talk for another time all right okay so what i'm encountering when i'm hearing communal discussion is prevalence of you know disney and all kind of stuff that movies that we have 
a very sterile sort of perspective on how we fall, fall in love, which is, you know, it's that prince charming or that princess we're marrying. And then the the story stops at the wedding. Oh, yes. Right? It never goes past the wedding and talks about a struggle with depression, you know, mental health, cancer. They don't talk about the struggles then. Like, we only talk about getting there. And that's it. The end. Happily ever after. It's not happily ever after in the real world. Well, unfortunately, I don't think that makes for a very good movie. So I guess what I'm trying to look at, yeah, what I'm trying to get that is like, who is mentoring people nowadays on finding realistic partners? So we have a lot of guidance when we're young from career guidance, uh, career counselors, but who's giving us guidance on life, wisdom? How do I live the good life versus how do I climb up the corporate career, which it seems to be, you know, there's a lot of material, but there's, if your career messes up, you can always pick that up. If your life messes up, then it's way more harder to seek help. I think you've hit on something really interesting is the current young generation, who are we supposed to look to for guidance on life, on relationships, on marriage? What, who should we be looking to? Disney. Well, in the part, <laughs> yes, in the part, well, Disney has taken the, has happily taken, has taken over that role. Absolutely. It's going through due to lack of leadership. Disney has happily filled that void, but who should we be looking to? We should be looking to our parents. We should be looking to our grandparents, the past generations, to see how life works. Because guess what? They have lived that life. They know how life works. They can give us these valuable lessons. Unfortunately, we can't do that because the chain has been broken, where our parents and our grandparents don't have a successful track record. They they are a product, a result of the baby boomers, and sexual revolution. They are a result of that broken wreckage that's been caused, some of the things that, that happened in that time. Their relationships, their marriages, are not a good marker of what we can actually do. I'm just getting the generations right. So it's also, so it's, I'd say two to three generations are, are the product of the 1960s and 70s. And we can see we don't, I really think is that that broken chain of successful, repeatable marriages, relationship, or the model of that, that the next generation would then follow. There would be slight iterations, slight improvements along the way. A good example is, oh goodness, treating the wife as a equal partner, not as a slave in the household, for example. I think that's a, that's a, that's a brilliant uh, realization that we've made probably in the last 50, uh, 50 to 60 odd years. The chain has been broken of what a successful relationship looks like, so the generations that have come after, they can't look at a successful roadmap or model that they can get sage wisdom or advice on, oh, how do we do this? How do we respond to this? Because guess what? The people they're asking don't know. They don't have any life experience to fall back on. Anyway, that's my dry, That's my little diatribe done. <laughs> So as you, as you as you were talking there, it's, I, the, I, that idea started, it started worrying my head going, hang on, there's something we can talk about here. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, so what I want to look at is this self-actualization bit seems to be problematic. So I'm, one, I'm wondering, is the lower to mid-tier marriages good enough? And there's a book called Marry Him, The Case for Selling for Mr. Good Enough by Laurie Godley. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you heard of her? Have you heard of her book? I'm just I'm just laughing at the title. It's um. Uh yeah. So I, I yeah. Go yeah. ahead. No no. It's just it's just it's just a funny fun a, a funny worded title. That's all. <laughs> funny because I think when I listened to her interview, 
she didn't show the title. Her publisher did. You know, should I try to get the extra sale? I think it was something else, but anyway. I'd be curious what the original, what the author's original title for their book would have been. Yeah, I might put it in the epilogue or something like that. Mm. So Laurie Gottlieb is a journalist. Uh, she was she documents this journey, struggling to find long lasting relationship and marriage. Then she hit her forties and she went for IVF to get a kid. And then when she was writing the book, she's trying to do some research and to understand marital success. So I just read it from a section on uh, uh, chapter 22, Good Enough Marriage. So she comes across a research by Paul Monto, a sociologist who did research in 1980s on marriage of 2,000 people and tracked the marital satisfaction over 20 years. So she does a phone interview with Monto. So the passage. So what we found seemed surprising at first, he told me over the phone, because we think of couples who get divorced as going through a long, terrible period of fighting. We think of them as estranged and so miserable that they decide the marriage can't be salvaged. This was true of some couples, but many didn't follow that pattern at all. Up until the divorce, in fact, they seemed to be getting along just well. They weren't ecstatically happy, but they weren't unhappy. They frequently went out with their spouse and when asked, said they had a few marital problems or disagreements. On a scale of 1 to 10, they rate the marriages as 7s, not 2s or 3s. Nothing serious was going on, Amado said. The marriages weren't perfect, but they were pretty good. Two years later, they were divorced. These couples were happy enough, but wanted something more. When the couples in Amado's study were asked why they got divorced, they say things like, We were drifting apart. It's not like when we first got married. Or, I didn't feel like I was growing up as a person. Or, I thought my spouse was a nice person, but not really my soulmate. They were disappointed, but not angry. They didn't dislike their spouse, Amado said. Some people said, You know, I still love my spouse, but I just realized that we weren't right for each other. Often they find someone else, and they thought, Now, this is my soulmate. Even though the marriage wasn't that bad, but they think they found something better. Grass is green on the other side. Yeah, and it's um, already getting some vibes from what we talked early before. But she continues, so just like single women who break up with good enough boyfriends because they think they'll find something better, a lot of these married folks were wrong. Five years later, Amado followed up and found that most people who remarried reported that either no increase in satisfaction or that they were less happy than they had been in their first marriages. We didn't ask if they regretted it, Amado said, because most people won't admit to making a mistake. It makes you look like a goofball. So we looked at symptoms of depression and asked how satisfied they were with their lives and compared their results with, from five years earlier. Statistically, they were less happy. This was because even if the second marriage was different from the first one, things traded off. Different didn't necessarily mean it was an improvement. And then she refers to like uh, smartmarriages.com where they find that couples who have an average of 10 compatibilities that they will never resolve so again, the whole if you it, it's when you remarry, it's not that your f- issues are fixed. You just trade them off for something else. And successful couples actually learn how to do coping strategies to deal with these incompatibilities. And then there was another reference to Rutgers Marriage Project, which tracked unhappy marriages and found that those who endured for five years would have improved marital satisfaction. They were very happy or quite happy. And. She quotes from a motto, 
Most good enough marriages had a potential to become stronger and better with time, effort and commitment. I think the soulmate concept has done a lot of harm because it sets the bar extremely high for a successful marriage. Marriage is not about metaphysics. And he actually refers back to those, the human potential movement by Maslow and Carl Rogers and all those aspects about self-growth. Another thing interesting that he said was, cooperative teamwork was a definition of good marriage, but now the focus has shifted to personal satisfaction through marital relationship itself. Yes, he might be a good father and a good husband, but will he satisfy my deepest needs for romantic love and personal growth? The result has been a delay in the age of marriage, an increasing number of women who will never marry, an increase in never married mothers, an increase in divorce for reasons having little to do with the spouse not being a supportive friend and cooperative teammate. And there's another bit where they talk about a research article where marriage was a strong factor for staving off depression. And here's one of the other bits that, that he found. So there's a question that Amado asks the young people. How do you know if you found the right one? And for women, there was a general comment that there were a description of feelings of butterflies, chemistry and fireworks. But for the men, they were a bit more pragmatic in that during dating, when the woman was on a period of absence, he comments that he realizes at that moment he misses her and was happier when she was around. And then the researchers again critique that. Researchers ask about, say, how do spouses deal with the flaws? And for the husbands, it's like, well, this and that issue might come up, but it's something that bothers us, but not that much. And the wife, when they interviewed the wife, it was like, well, where do I start? And they start with this long list of failures and they can never let go. <laughs> so there's a difference in, I guess, the gender on how they, on the genders and how they view the marriage. When the Amado says about teamwork and satisfying those lower needs and coping strategies and trying to grow together as a team, all those things is found in research and it supports the sort of the stuff that we discussed earlier about well, this is this self-actualization marriage is all about the the need for yourself rather than the other person. What's some of the flaws that he's trying to critique on? So there's an idea that when people people will break up because they feel lonely in a relationship, they think it's abnormal, but it's actually normal to feel periods of loneliness in a marriage, right? Because yeah, you know, we look at our work hours, we're away from the home and from each other most of the time what he thinks is the aspects of success is the actual pragmatic thing. So not the self-actualization bit. See, he says, a lot of things come down to pragmatic things that keep the marriage in long-term. This isn't what a lot of single people find exciting, but if they want a long-term marriage, they need to start looking for the things that are going to be important in one. So is this an argument against the self-actualization marriages? So... You know, self-actualization seems to be a very short-term thing, whereas what something that will sustain a relationship is the more pragmatic bits. Uh, we're not fixing our problems which by changing, uh, going from marriage to marriage. We're actually just changing our problems. And then another thing that he picks up is uh, later in the book, effects of breakup of good enough marriages. So these lower to mid-tier marriages, they have an effect on the kids. So the kids will take these sort of observations that, and they'll actually have lower self-esteem and they'll have lower tolerance for non-compatibility based on the experience as a kid. 
And I guess when you look, think back to the Instagram breakup, right? You know, there's a lot of things that echo here. So the woman says, nothing was wrong. We still have love and respect for each other, but we're just two people growing apart. And that was echoed into, into Laurie Gottlieb's book. And, you know, when I look at modern literature, well, when I look at uh, Tolstoy and Anna Karenina, we see from her perspective on how she despises her husband and wants to go on an affair. But, you know, when, when things get hard, when she actually reflects on things, she realizes how good her husband was. So I think these, this self-actualization bit is, it seems sexy, but it doesn't make a good relationship last. And... There's probably, you know, there's probably not a hairy one, which is the whole, when researchers were trying to look at male and female perspectives of marriages, is there like a, a female trait in the emotional thinking? You know, when, when he said, how do you know you found the one? It's butterflies versus all these other pragmatic traits that we talked about. Uh, so some takeaway points for myself. So I think using time wisely and really think of your non-negotiables. Uh, all those things will matter in the long term. So we've we've heard about the opening story from the Reddit posts about her long list of negotiables. What is your non-negotiable? And is that one of those bits that will fit on the pragmatic side or is it the self-actualization side? And bear in mind, we talked about the consequences of just focusing on those bits. Um, men and women can be picky, but the the takeaway point here is being picky about the right things. So it's okay to have a list, but I think when you have that long list and uh, what's one of the things I've, I've um, encountered? I don't know. It must be six foot tall. I'm like, I, I, I can never grow more than six feet. Uh, I've stopped growing. So is that what you're going to discount people on? Is that a sensible thing? And, you know, dating apps suck. And, and why is that? Because if we talk about the self-actualization person, uh, we talk about those pragmatic needs and you cram that all into a tiny screen on your phone that fits in your pocket. How do you know whether that person, when you're chatting to, to that person on your on your app, is going to actually give you all those needs? I think, you know, dating apps are a good gateway to meet that person, but to discount a person right away is, what's the right word? I guess it's... it's um, it's non-pragmatic. If, if we're going to talk about trying to meet the right person, I think you should seek the advice from your family and friends, people who know you, who spend a long time with you, and to give you objective advice about you when you're in that emotional state. If if emotional thinking is going to, it's what's drive us, then we need someone to put on the, the brakes and to give us some kind of logical and objective advice on whether you're a good fit and your family and friends are good people i mean i guess that's why you know those um in eastern cultures when they had arranged marriages they were funnily enough um they were just as successful as you know western marriages for love i think giving people a chance like if you're going to seek for all those needs then you can't just be fixed to your screen and hopefully like you know come up a person that will meet your need like you know like uber takeaway that kind of stuff like it's you gotta meet that person we talked about those higher self-actualization needs. Can they be met somewhere else? So at church, in the with a psychologist, in a self-help group, you know, art, that kind of stuff. Can that be met somewhere else rather than just putting all that burden onto your spouse? 
And I think it sort of makes sense that when people split up for really trivial reasons, it can leave a, a group of very bitter people because it's like, you know, what was wrong with me? Well, there was nothing wrong. You just weren't meeting my higher needs. But we know that there's higher needs. It's very hard to meet them. And like, can you even meet them yourself with that, uh, that person? And I think it's sort of led to this culture where we have like, you know, men are just bitter, angry, they're anti-marriage. And it's not they're acting emotionally. I think it's acting, they're acting rationally. And I think my overall takeaway is that we've hyped up marriage into this self-actualization, but we break up relationships when these needs aren't met, thinking our next marriage will meet these needs, but I've traded one problem for another. Um, it's like we're our worst enemy in finding love. All right, Pat. <laughs> okay, so some, so some takeaways here. We've, we've tackled a pretty loaded topic here, so it'll... I'll try and I'll try and come up with some um, some some thoughts here. Or I'll try to wrap my thoughts around here to close this off. So, unfortunately, uh, life is hard. It's it's stressful. It's difficult, and I, it's it's an important. It's a lesson. It's a lesson that we're taught from an early age, and the fact of life is that hey, bills have to be paid. We've got stresses of life, stresses at work difficult co-workers it's the never-ending grind what makes us think that a relationship with another equally flawed person prone to the exact same stresses that we get in everyday life is going to be magically perfect it's it's not disney it's not the happily ever after romance you raise it we raised a really interesting point that the disney movie will end the credits will roll when the after just after the wedding it won't discuss or explore what happens afterwards and that notion's been ingrained especially in our generation from a really early age and i don't think it's a really healthy lesson that we've learned and probably needs to be rejected or thrown out or at least tempered in some respects um relationships i think are supposed to be a team it's a team effort effort of two people coming together and try and take on to try and take on the world all the stresses all the trials all the difficulties that come with it that is just part that's just part of the deal so let's let's compound it with that both people who make up that relationship are equally flawed and broken as the other so i guess to put into a bit of a christian context it's it sets a relationship and a marriage i think on a really firm foundation when we realize that the person we're we're with in a relationship they're just as flawed and broken as you are I think it's two broken people coming together and filling in the gaps in the other person's life just in the same way that they fill in the gaps in your life. I think it's when you realize that, yes, yeah, self-actualization is important, but when you reverse it, the self-actualization is focused on the other person and they're doing the exact same thing to, thing for you. That's where you get a, a much more healthy relationship, I think, when you realize that it's not you as the focus, it's the other person. And when the other person is doing the exact same thing for you, they're not focusing on themselves, they're focusing on you. You've got that, that symbiotic relationship, and it's a circular relationship because you're focused on the other, they're focused on you. There's a bit of a biblical principle at the heart of that. But I think that that is where a firm foundation for a marriage can be built upon. Again, I think, I think that's something that we've lost, and I think we need to get back to. 
We conclude this episode with a finding from Amado's research on why some couples divorce, and the comments of those who break up over incompatibilities are very striking to some of the stories we heard in the beginning. If Eli Finkel's explanation gives us the history and logical reason of why modern marriages fail, then Amado and Gottlieb tells us about the human and emotional thinking that lead to divorce and less satisfaction. Perhaps we ourselves are the biggest barrier to finding love. I think it's also important to note the costs for breaking up over minor incompatibilities. Amado and Gottlieb notes that children who witness the breakup of good enough marriages will develop low self-esteem and low tolerance for incompatibility in their relationships. By breaking up too early, we may miss out on developing coping strategies and develop as a team. It is ironic that we yearn for personal growth and challenges that make ourselves better. But by breaking up too early and not developing good character traits like patience, empathy, good communication, and care, we miss out on good growth, which is exactly what we want, but we just don't recognize it. It's not through living in comfort that we grow, but the rounding off the sharp edges that make us a better person. Well, how do you feel about today? And do you agree with the experts? You can reach us at thefireinthedesert at gmail.com or Twitter at fireinthedesert. We'll be working on a fortnightly schedule for the next episode, but please stay tuned and always share, like, and subscribe. Share this episode with your friends so we can gain more listeners and help spread the word. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kevin McLeod at incontact.com. And thank you for listening to The Fire in the Desert, conversations about life, culture, and society. And we'll see you guys next time. 